Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our show offers a friendly conversation with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by the Learn It family of companies, including Autism Spectrum Therapies, Trellis Services, and Desert Choice Schools, helping all children succeed in school and life. Now, here is your host, Rob Haupt. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Autism Talk. I'm your host, Rob Haupt. I am Vice President of Autism Spectrum Therapies, part of the Learned Family of Companies, um, providing ABA therapy to individuals with autism and developmental disabilities all across the country. Um, really, really uh, excited about today's show. This is um, a topic that I personally find just fascinating. Um, you know, the thing that as I feel like my career has evolved, I go to a lot of different presentations, share a lot of discussions, and um, I get to talk about ABA, and I get to talk about my, you know, my world, my viewpoint, and I get to talk to other people who have that viewpoint or disagree with that viewpoint. Um, but the thing that I'm really interested in constantly as we keep having these conversations is the the, the genetic side of um, of of autism, you know, there's there's clearly based on all the research that is is out there, and everyone agrees there's some sort of genetic component. How much, where, how, why is, is a part of this that we're still trying to understand. And um, I think that we've been really fortunate on this show to have some really great guests who have been able to kind of take these ideas, take the the science, and break it down for us in in a more approachable way. And and I think that's important because I think most of us kind of hear genetics and and we get overwhelmed. Um, I sometimes think that like my ability to process all of this is my high school biology class and, you know, my basic understanding of genetic code is like that cartoon from the beginning of the original Jurassic Park says, Um, you know, I I don't have it. I've, I've never been a great, um, biology students, you know, for me, it was always more of the social sciences. It was, it was more of the psychology side of things and, and less of this physical sciences. And, um, you know, today's guest is someone who um, not only is able to break down this science in a really, you know, digestible way that, that we can all understand. I think she also is going to be able to give us some great insight into what we can all do, how we can all be involved in in making a difference in all of this. And I, and I think that's important because we can all play a part in this. Um, and I know a lot of families who um, I've worked with over the years, particularly here in Southern California, who have participated in different studies through UCLA. Um, they participated in some of the, uh, the different genetic studies out there. And the feedback I've received from them has just been amazing. They, they've valued the experience. Um, and it's not one that's necessarily said, well, this is what happened with your child, but to be part of the process, to, to get access to some of these researchers, um, they've all said it was just an uh, amazing experience because you are part of a solution as well as it just gives you a little bit more of an understanding of why. It doesn't answer every question, 
but the, the why and the how starts to make a little bit more sense. And all of that then ties into, and now how can we push treatment forward and what else can we do? Um, so today's show, we're going to be joined by uh, Wendy Chung. And Wendy is the Director of Clinical Research at the Simons Foundation Autism Research Initiative, which does both basic and applied science to serve people affected by autism spectrum disorders. She's the principal investigator of one of the foundations, Simon's Variation in Individuals Project, which characterizes behavior and brain structure and function in participants with genetic copy number variants, such as those at 16P11.2 play a role in autism spectrum disorders. Thank you for having me. Very glad to be here. Um, so really excited to have you here. Um, the, the genetic research side of autism and all that's going on is something that I feel like we, we haven't gotten a chance to talk too much about uh, on the show over the last few years. Um, and, um, and I know Simon's Foundation is kind of at, at the forefront of it. Um, maybe just for our listeners who maybe haven't been, aren't familiar with Simon's or aren't familiar with Spark, maybe you could just start off giving us a little bit of background about, you know, what is the Simon's Foundation? What is Spark? Um, just to give everyone some context for, for what we're going to talk about. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Thanks. So the Simons Foundation is based in New York City. Uh, it's an organization that's devoted to science and mathematics, and a division within the Simons Foundation is called Safari, and that's our program that's devoted to research within autism. Um, we have a program that we fund uh, researchers around the world uh, who are studying not just the genetic aspects of autism, but many different aspects. Um, and one of the programs that I'm uh, most excited about is a program that we started that you mentioned called SPARC, Simon's Foundation Powering Autism Research for Knowledge. Um, it's a study that's pretty large in scope in thinking about this, and it's trying to address that we had between individuals and their families with autism who wanted to be able to participate in research and understand um, if they had a genetic condition that we could define associated with their autism, and also being able to connect with the researchers who very much wanted to be able to make progress in understanding autism better and coming up with better supports for individuals, um, but not being able necessarily to even know sometimes what the right areas to focus were on. Um, so being able to get a dialogue started between individuals with autism, the community of their families and providers with the researchers who could be able to execute those studies and to be able to make sure we had a way for them to connect together um, and work together to some better answers and hopefully better supports in the future. So this, uh, the SPARC study in particular has been going on now since April 2016. So we're just a little over about a year and a half into it. And our goal is to have over 50,000 individuals with autism and their families in the study. And I'm proud to say that we're already up to just about 26,000 as of today. Um, so making wow. a lot of progress in terms of being able to build this community where we can work together to come up with some answers. I think that's so cool. I mean, one of the things as we were kind of getting ready for today's show that we were talking about here at, at at the office, at the studio, whatever, whatever we call it, um, is, you know, it feels like there's, I, I go to a lot of conferences and, and being on the ABA side, I feel like there's it, the genetic research being done. I feel like we're really not well-informed and, and a lot of the families we work with don't even know 
what's going on and, and how they can get involved. So I think this is such a great opportunity for people to be more informed and get more involved in this type of research. I know I saw some folks, um, I think uh, probably July of 2016 is when I first started seeing um, people mm-hmm. from the Sparks Project at like Autism Society of America's National Conference and, and a couple of other right. places. So it's it's great that like these bridges are being formed for people to become more involved as well as more informed. Uh-huh. And and I'll just say very specifically that if people did want to get involved in Spark, you can go online to sparkforautism.org. And one of the things that we've built into this is very much wanting to work, as I said, in partnership with the community. And so for individuals that would like to learn about their own specific genetics um, related to autism, uh, what's unique about this is that you can actually get back your genetic information about autism. So this is not something that just goes to researchers that, you know, sort of file this away for a rainy day, um, it goes right back to, to the folks that are participating. So it's an opportunity, like you said, for people to get individually informed um, about themselves. That's cool. That's really cool. You know, kind of looking at this from, a, from that broader lens, you know, and I'm sure we'll talk about Spark again, but like from the broader perspective of, of the different, you know, of the research, um, you know, I think we talk about, causes of autism. And obviously that is like such a hot topic. I feel like every Mm -hmm. time I go somewhere, I meet someone new and they find out what I do for a living, you know, it's like the first question I get is, well, do we know what causes it? Um, So Mm -hmm. what, you know, there's so much research that's been done through the Simons Foundation. You know, what I, this is, I know, a huge question I will probably have to dig deeper into, but what, what have we learned? What, what are the causes yeah. that we've been able to start to identify? Well, I think, as, as you know so well, um, you know, autism is not a single thing. It's not a single condition, mm-hmm. um, and that's why we call it a spectrum, because there is really a wide spectrum. Yeah. Um, and I think we are learning that not all of the causes are the same for everyone who's along that spectrum. Um, and so I think there are different answers for different folks. And, and that's perhaps not surprising, mm-hmm. although I think it's confusing sometimes to talk about it. And so, you know, I'll, I'll talk about it as if it's, you know, just because my language only allows it to, to call it autism, but it's really the autisms and it's the full spectrum. So as you were you know, pointing out, I'll talk a little bit about the genetics to start with because it's something, both because I'm a geneticist um, and it is something that I mm-hmm. think we've learned probably the most about in terms of the causes within the last decade at least. Um, so one of the things that I think was a real you know, surprise in some ways um, was when we first realized that there were genetic causes of autism, but they, you know, most people, when they think about genetics, think about things that run in their family and, you know, they'll ask, well, do I have anyone else in my family, brother, sister, cousin that has autism? Um, And if, you know, they don't, they'll say, well, it can't be genetic. It's not in my family. Um, But one of the things we realize now in terms of the genetics of autism is that there are some genetic things that start brand new with the person with autism. You know, when we think about it, genetic changes have to start somewhere. And sometimes we're realizing that those genetic changes start first with the person with autism. Um, And we call these de novo or new genetic changes. Um, When we see that happening, depending on where along the spectrum someone is, it could be anywhere from 10 to 30% of those individuals on that spectrum will actually have that 
that mechanism, that new genetic change that's a cause for their autism. And it explains for us, for instance, why there are some people that don't have a family history of autism. You know, it sort of came out of the blue, um, came that one time. Uh, And those particular um, genetic causes are in some ways relatively easy for us to find right now. Nothing's trivial, but uh, we're able to do these types of analyses where we compare a child with autism directly to their parents, uh, mom and dad, from a genetic point of view, and we can do a genetic inventory to see what's the same and what's different between the individual with autism and the other members of their family, and therefore be able to Mm. figure out, it's it's kind of like the old Sesame Street, which one of these is not like the other, Um, you know, being able to figure out which of those genetic differences is unique to the person with autism. Now, what's interesting Mm -hmm. is that when, when you do this, and certainly people have done this not just for individuals with autism, but individuals just that, you know, are quote-unquote neurotypicals, not that any of us is really quite normal or quite typical, but um, all of us have these changes. So in other words, the process of just having a child, none of us are perfect, we're all human. And there are on average Mm -hmm. about 100 genetic differences for any child from their two parents. Um, But what's different in in terms of some individuals with autism is where those changes happen to land. If they happen to land in genes that are important for the way the brain works and the way the brain develops, it can be associated with autism. Um, And so, as I was saying, depending on what end of the spectrum or where along the spectrum an individual is, somewhere between 10 and 30% of individuals will actually have these particular changes that happen to land in a gene that's important in terms of brain function. Um, And so that's at least the explanation that we know with, you know, greatest confidence. We understand that best. Um, We also realize, though, that there are lots of individuals where autism does run in the family. And it may just not be autism, but it may be autism. There can be some related other behavioral differences. There can be epilepsy. Um, And in some cases, those are related and are responsible um, because of heritable or inherited genetic factors. And so when we talk about genes, it, it also sounds like it's one thing, but it's actually both of those two different types of things, new genetic changes as well as inherited genetic changes um, that can all cause autism and in, in some cases look indistinguishable. You know, can't, you really can't tell the difference between those until you get down to the genetic level. So when we're looking at the, um, the de novo changes, um, I, 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 I think I got half of what you were saying. And, and okay. well, I think I got half of what you were saying, and I'm making some assumptions about the second half. So I okay. like your analogy, like the Sesame Street, about like which of these things is not like the other. Because like, right. I, I was even going to ask you at one point, like, why is it easier to figure out some of these things or why we have to learn the most? But it makes sense is you've got my child's genes, you've got my genes, my wife's genes, and now you can do a comparison. So is it as simple as you're looking at any change in – the brain that would tie into potentially autism, or is it more specific like that? Like, is it really broad or, you know, any change in our brain area and that that could be it? So um, it's actually really broad, and I have to, you know, I'm maybe slightly embarrassed to admit this, um, but we have about 20,000 genes in our genetic code, uh, in our blueprint for our bodies. We we don't know Mm -hmm. what even half of those genes do. Um, You know, we're very 
ignorant in terms of, uh, or I should say, just learning in terms of what many of these genes do. So when we do these mm-hmm. types of inventories, you know, that we were talking about, kind of this Sesame Street inventory, uh, we do it really yeah. being agnostic yeah. to knowing what the genes do. We just kind of blindly go through and catalog and say, okay, this particular genetic change, it came from mom, it came from dad, or it came from neither mom nor dad. It started brand new. Um, And when you do this on scale, just to give you a sense of this, our genetic code has 3 billion alphabet letters. So that's a lot of, you know, places for differences, a lot of places for changes to occur. Um, And for any one person, you know, the difference between you and you and I, we're going to have literally hundreds of thousands of genetic differences between the two of us. And so it's being Mm -hmm. able to figure out of those hundreds of thousands of differences, which ones of them are, you know, really responsible or contributing to autism. So as you were suggesting, we can take some... um, We can be somewhat smarter about this, Um, so we can do things like Mm -hmm. do an inventory of what genes are in the brain, you know, what genes does it take to Mm -hmm. make a brain cell. Um, So we have ways of being able to do that inventory and say, okay, well, of the 20,000, maybe there are 8,000 that are really important in terms of brains. Mm -hmm. Um, So that whittles the list down, but even still it becomes an astronomically large problem in terms of trying to weed out which are the ones that are just, I call them innocent bystanders but just normal genetic variants that don't do anything, um, Uh either good or bad, versus the ones that actually cause, you know, they're more disruptive or or make changes in terms of the brain or behavior. Um, And so one of the things that's helpful is to see it not just in one single person with autism, but to see it over and over again in many, many different individuals with autism. And it becomes kind of a statistical argument, you know, that we're not seeing this just by chance alone, but we're seeing it over and over and over again. And then we become more confident. So that, that I'm so glad you said that because that's literally what was going to be my next question. And, and now I feel like I have a, a whole better appreciation also, I'm assuming, for Spark because if we can get 50,000 people and compare these things, th- this genetic code again and again and again, you start to get that statistical scale that you're talking about. Right, exactly. So the, the point in all of this is that really no one of us can answer these questions. Um, it really is going to take large numbers to be able to do this. And, you know, in the past, um, one of the issues was that it was just expensive to do these types of analyses. I mean, literally, you yeah. know, hundreds of thousands of dollars just to look at one person. Um, and one of the things that's changed is that Thankfully, the cost of of sequencing, the cost of analyzing a genetic code has come down, and so it's now possible to do experiments on larger scales like this. And the other part of this is, as I was alluding to, you know, one person with autism is just one person with autism. Um, And because there's such a broad spectrum, you know, we want to be able to make sure we're representing the entire community because different people in the community have different needs and and different things that they'll Mm -hmm. need support with. And we want to try and support the largest portion of the community that we can. Um, And so as we're doing it, it's likely that there are going to be different answers for different people on the spectrum. And exactly what you Mm -hmm. said, it's just a numbers game. It's it's literally making sure that we've got the confidence um, in any finding, whether it's a genetic finding or any other finding. And, and we want to make sure that what we're doing is really robust, you know, that people can really have confidence in the findings that we found, not just because it was a statistical fluke, but because, you know, we just see it over and over again so robustly, so confidently that it's just got to be true. So when you think about, like, the numbers game, and, and I and I, I really appreciate that you brought up um, the term autisms, 
Um, mm-hmm. And I've heard that a few times before, and and the explanation for it has always made so much sense from to me. Just you know the concept that hey, look, it's not autism; it's it's all of these different points along the spectrum. What I guess if you think about all of those different points along the spectrum, like how many people do we need to cross-reference to be able to come up with this connection where you start to say, okay, yeah. got it, it's this this genetic code here. Is it, hey, we saw this in five? Is it we saw it in 500? Like what is that? Yeah. It, it, yeah. Or, or is it different for everyone? Well, so I'll I'll start with um, what you were talking about in terms of the genetics. So we can do these calculations to try and do the estimates in terms of how many genes we think are contributing to autism. And the current estimates are just estimates, but they go somewhere between 500 and 1,000. So, you know, fairly large number in terms of doing this. And we don't see them all with equal frequency. Some are more common than others, and we already know that from the, the research that's been done. So as an example, there are, you know, probably about 70 genes right now that I feel very confident are associated with autism and that we understand, wow. you know, with, you know, we understand something about. We don't understand them perfectly, but, but we're at least confident about them being autism genes. Um, to me, that means we're probably at best about 10% of the way there. Um, we still got about 90% to go. And so you can estimate based on the number of families it took to be able to get to those 70 genes, how much more it's gonna take to get to the 500 or 1,000 genes. And that's, that is in fact where that number of 50,000 came from, is that, that the estimates were that it was going to, the estimates are, that it's gonna take about 50,000 of those families to be able to round that out and figure out what most of the genetic factors are contributing. Um, I'm not gonna say wow. it's perfect, I'm not going to say it's going to identify sure. every single last one, um, but it's going to get you know closer to the to that answer. I think the thing that's um, challenging is that even though I'm a geneticist and it's going to sound heretical for me to say this, uh, it's not all about the genes, right? I mean, the genes are something that are right. very helpful for us to understand. We have strategies to understand that, um, but it isn't all about the genes, or at least it isn't in everyone. Um, and so I think the other part of what we're trying to do on Spark, and, and if anything, I think this is even more challenging, is that you know there are also differences, not just as points along the spectrum, but there are differences, for instance, between males and females. And there are differences when you're four years old than when you're 40 years old. Um, and there are differences if you live in Florida than if you live in Pennsylvania or Florida versus, for instance, Mississippi. Um, you know, geographic right. differences and cultural differences, and and so there are a lot of dimensions in which when, when I think about how individuals need support, there are a lot of different dimensions in which support would be helpful. And it's not going to be the same answer either across the age distribution, the ethnic distribution, the gender distribution. You know, it's, it's going to be different answers for different folks. And so we really did want to be able to foster a community where we were really going to be working together uh, hand in hand with the researchers to make sure that the researchers, you know, knew what important, what, what questions were important, how to prioritize their effort, um, and also reciprocally to make sure that, you know, the community was there to be able to support answering those important questions. I want to ask one more genetic question before we kind of tackle, because you brought up the, you know, these all these other factors beyond the genes that that I, I wanted to talk about as well. But there was a when you were talking about the seventy genes equaling ten percent, 
um, it kind of got my mind thinking is, you know, and, and being on the treatment side, I think about, okay, where does this individual fall on the spectrum? You know, is it, you know, if, if that's 10%, that adds up to be 700 genes. Um, is it that we're looking at 700 different types of autism or is it mm. that multiple genes could then lead to the same type of autism? Yeah. So uh, it's a great question. And I think, um, you know, you can think about the types of autism in several different dimensions. Um, so mm -hmm. one of the ways that I think about it is from a very practical point of view, um, you know, thinking about functional uh, ability of individuals. So just as an example, there's some individuals mm -hmm. with autism um, that they just don't speak. Um, they may have other ways of right. expressing themselves. They may be able to use other communication devices or things, but they just don't verbally speak and have words come out of their mouth. Um, that might, you know, some people might call that a type or a category or a place along the spectrum of autism. Um, mm -hmm. There are other individuals that, you know, are completely verbal, right? They speak fluently. They have no problems with that. And most of their challenges are really mm -hmm. around uh, social issues, right, in terms of being able to make connections and being able to have friends and be able to carry on more of a social interchange. Um, but, you know, they could they could recite something. They could, you know, speak perfectly clearly. And, and you might call that a different type of autism. So that's one way of categorizing right. things. Um, sometimes, though, the categories for me are along a dimension of a medical dimension. So um, as a pediatrician, you know, one of the things in autism that I worry a little bit about is seizures or epilepsy. And there are certainly individuals with autism that have seizures. And that's a big, that's a big either concern or something that needs to be medicated or treated. And there are other individuals that never, ever have had and never, ever will have seizures, um, you know, who have autism. Right. And, and so those, that's another sort of dimension you can give it in terms of types. Um, from a genetic point of view, just to get back to your original question, you know, there might be, let's just say for the sake of argument, 700 genetic types of autism, but many of those are going to look exactly the same, um, that for practical purposes, you know, if you were to see them in a classroom or you were to see them at the park, you would say, yeah, you know, they pretty much, they're at the same functional level. They might have the same challenges. Um, and if they were the same age, you know, you, could, you couldn't tell them apart necessarily unless you looked down and drilled down into the genes. Um, and at one level, it may not be important to drill down in the genes. If you're trying to figure out, you know, for instance, in the classroom coming up with ABA therapy for them. Or, or a behavioral modification plan, it may not be necessary to know the exact gene that you're talking about. Um, but on the other hand, one of the things that I hope we'll get to at some point will be therapies that might be, whether they're, for instance, pills that can be taken or other therapies, um, they mm -hmm. might really depend on exactly what the molecular problem is. So in other words, if I'm trying to figure out a pill that's going to make some receptor work better, I need to figure out what receptor has the problem. You know, I need to be able to get something in a sort of CSI type of molecular way that's going to get into the brain and, and sort of fix whatever it is at a very fundamental level isn't firing quite right. Um, and for that, I think it is going to be much more useful to know the individual underlying molecular genetic basis in those cases. I don't think they're all going to be entirely different. I do think that some of things, some of these genes are going to be genes that work together. They're, they're kind of a right and the left hand working together with things in some cases. 
Um, and in other cases, I do think they're going to be very, very different. Um, but you're right that I do think there's going to be, I'll just use the word convergence. I don't think everything, you know, I don't think every single person with autism sure. is completely unlike anyone else, that it's not going to be helpful to, you know, put people together in certain groups. Um, but I do think that sometimes where we get misled or why some researchers get results that don't make sense or aren't consistent is because we lump everyone together in one group and we call everyone autism and we expect that their brains are all going to behave and work the same way. And that's just preposterous. You know, they're, they're very different. But what you're saying about, um, the pill, the, you know, and that, that's kind of where my mind started to go. It's kind of like that next step of maybe they all come together and it looks the same, but maybe mm-hmm. this gene has a potential treatment that comes with it that this other gene does it. So if I have both layers of information, the presentation may be what the ABA therapy is treating by knowing the genetic backup, we now potentially have a medical treatment that could come with it, and now the two in conjunction become robust treatment and therapy, and, and um, yeah. Right, and, and I want to just emphasize one of the things you said, which I think is a critical point, sure. so I want to make sure listeners realize this, is when we think about treatments or, or supports for individual, um, I think it's oftentimes going to be a combination of things that's going to be most effective. Um, Mm-hmm. So as an example, I do think that if if we are able to come up with things that are pills or medical therapies, it's going to be very much in conjunction with ABA and other therapies, other, <coughs> excuse me, yeah. other behavioral strategies, other educational strategies, <coughs> excuse me, that are going to work in conjunction uh, with being able to work with a brain that's more, if you will, receptive, you know, that's just in a better state and a better place where, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to be able to be more effectual and get some of those therapies to stick, get them to last, get them, you know, get um, individuals to be able to adapt to the, that information and those learnings probably more readily and more quickly. Um, so it's not, I don't, I don't think there's going to be a wonder pill in terms of a wonder drug where you're just going to take that and boom, autism is going to go away. Right. Um, yeah. Right, I wish, um, but yeah. I think it's going to be more along the lines of that may be more helpful in terms of a lot of the foundational work that we do in terms of ABA therapy and other things, and, and hopefully getting it to stick better. Got it. No, that makes that makes perfect sense. Um, you know, looking at the. These, this other half of things, and I, I, I kind of wrote a note to myself as you were speaking, just like lumping everything into just like the environment. You know, you we're talking about Mississippi mm. versus Florida, forty-year-old um, versus four-year-old. I mean, how that that seems overwhelming. When I when I heard you rattle everything off, you know, I felt good about understanding the basics of how we we're looking at the genetics. And and um, you know, one of my first questions probably twenty minutes ago was going to be, why is studying genetics easier? Why have we learned more there? And now I get it. The these broader factors seem even more overwhelming to me. So uh-huh. how how do we start looking at these factors? How do we start researching these factors? Well, I have to say, and and I think you're right that it's no mistake that we started with the genetics. Um, genetics were at mm-hmm. least something that are, you know, in some ways I think of them as anchors. Um, you know, they're they're mm-hmm. things that at least with the right tools, you can understand and you can really get your arms around. Um, some of, let me just, you, you mentioned environmental factors, which are incredibly important yeah. as well. Unfortunately, I think we are 
much less well positioned to be able to identify those environmental factors just because they're so numerous and because we don't have easy ways of being able to quantify them or even to be able to you know, know what we've been exposed to from the point of conception onward to our current age. You know, so if you think about it, let me just take one example of air pollution, right? So um, air pollution, yeah. there's some evidence that air pollution in certain individuals may increase the risk of autism. It may be that it's a combination of air pollution plus some genetic endowment. Um, we'll see over time, but we'll take air pollution as one example. Um, you know, I, I don't know, but do you have any idea, you know, what particulates you're breathing in right at this very moment? I mean, I can certainly say I personally don't. It's not like I have a little sensor on my watch, you know, that tells me these things. Sure. It's not like, you know, I've known that from the time, you know, I was born or even before that from the time I was conceived on up, you know, now to, you know, the last 50 years of my life. I, I, I just don't know that. I'm ignorant of what that is. I don't know what chemicals, you know, entirely I've eaten in all the different foods I've eaten or what pesticides I might have been exposed to or, you know, what different chemicals were in the bottles, the, you know, glasses, the plates that I've been eating off my entire life. I'm just ignorant of all that information. So, and, and I don't know exactly how to be able to collect that going forward. You know what I mean? I, I don't know if someone asked yeah. me a question, I could tell them, yeah, I could tell you where I lived. I could tell you my street address. I could tell you what my job was, you know, so if there were a chemical specifically that I was exposed to when I was working in an organic chemistry lab, yeah, I could probably come up with something like that that was very specific. Um, but otherwise, I just don't know what all those other factors are. If there were infections, you know, viruses that I might have been exposed to, Mm -hmm. uh, I couldn't tell you every single reason why I got a sniffle or a sneeze over my life. You know, it's not like I necessarily went to the doctor and they made a diagnosis of all those different viruses. Um, so I think part of it is that it's just, you know, it's really hard to get your arms around that because for any one person, even if I say, you know, I'm a relatively informed person and, you know, I have a pretty good memory, I can't tell you most of those things, let alone, you know, being able to tell you about all of the other individuals, you know, that, that we have out there with autism. So, you know, it's just, it's frustratingly difficult because there are just a lot of unknowns out there, um, you know, for any of us to be able to figure out. So we have been thinking, we haven't totally given up um, because we do think environment is a very important factor. Um, there are certain ways that you can try and think about this, and, and I'll just throw this out there, you know, in terms of brainstorming ideas. Um, so yeah. increasingly, you can know at least where you've been, or at least I can know where my phone has been, um, because it has ways of being able to track, you know, where you are, where you go. I use it every day when I'm using it to get directions on ways, you know, so it knows where I go. And, and in theory, you could put that together with information that we have from the Environmental Protection Agency, um, the EPA, and being able to, you know, they monitor water quality, air quality, things like that. Um, in theory, you could get some gross estimation, at least of some of those environmental exposures. Um, we could, we are getting more information, not perfect, but more information um, through electronic medical records to know what medications we've taken when we have been sick, you know, what did we have? Did we have a fever? Did we have, you know, at least a diagnosed uh, virus or bacteria that was causing things? So none of these are perfect, um, but they are ways of starting to get at this and starting to get at, you know, are we seeing little mini epidemics? Are we seeing an increased frequency of autism 
either in certain regions or certain times? And can we put that together with something, you know, some either exposure that we know of in the community, whether there was a natural disaster or an outbreak or something else, you know, can we be able to make any of those correlations? So we're starting to try, but it is doggone hard to be able to put together these things that you just don't even know about. Um, so it's, it's, going to take even larger numbers, I bet, than the 50,000 we're talking about in Spark to get, to get at those questions. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny you brought up in your example air pollution because I've, I've become familiar with, I think there's a study done here out of um, the out of Los Angeles, I think it's affiliated with the Boone Fetter Clinic, where they were looking at air pollution and proximity to freeways. And mm-hmm. um, you know, I've spoken to, you know, again, as I said to you, like, I, I get that question right away. What's, what, what do we know about causes? And sometimes right. that's an example I'll, I'll, I'll mention. And most people are like, oh, that's very interesting. And, and I had one really um, uh, intelligent person, you know, well-read, uh, has a bit of a science background. He himself was just like, you know, well, don't we have to compare then when this was all taken? And and I didn't know enough about mm-hmm. the study to say this, but he made a good point of, he's like, hey, I grew up in L.A. Let me tell you what smog looked like here in the 80s and 90s compared to today. And does that factor mm-hmm. in? And it just, it seems that, that kind of, for me, was just like, wow, like I can't even look at this. It's to your point, a 40-year-old versus a four-year-old. Yeah. I think my in, in my simple way, I was thinking like, okay, great, we can compare those, and it's like, no, we really, we really can't. Right. Well, I think one of the things that is important, though, to think about is there are times in life that are probably more important than others. So when we think about, right. um, you know, the developing brain, um, that's probably a, a time in life when the brain is most susceptible to something being disrupted or something being changed. Gotcha. Um, and and. And the one thing that I think people sometimes forget about is you think about a developing brain and you might think about a pregnant mom and, you know, the baby developing Mm -hmm. inside. Um, But the brain is still continuing to develop after a baby is born. And so one of the things that, you know, sometimes we forget about is the developing brain is definitely during fetal life. um, And then it's also the period of time after birth for the first couple of years. And so that to me is probably Mm -hmm. the most, if, if we need to focus energy, it's probably focusing energy at that time in terms of what those critical factors might be that that ultimately have influence. Um, And I just want to also say one other thing, because I know there will be moms listening uh, on this, is that I do know that there are a lot of mothers that think back and that say to themselves, oh, my goodness, what did I do? You know, what did I do? What did I either eat or not eat? Or, you know, what did I take or not take? Or what did I feed my baby that I should or shouldn't have done? Um, The one thing I want to say is just for the the women out there, the moms out there, um, please just absolve yourself of the guilt of this, um, that I think that, you know, none of us as mothers obviously intentionally did anything to, to harm our children in, in, many yeah. way, in any way. And I just think that the, you know, almost I want to say natural, but the, the feelings of guilt that people can have over that are just completely counterproductive. Um, so I would get beyond yeah. that phase and just trying to focus on, you know, helping your child and working with your child, but don't, don't sort of obsess over this, you know, was there something I did wrong? Because indubitably the answer I'll bet you is that you didn't. So, Yeah. No, I'm, gl- I'm glad you said that because I've, I've had, I've had mothers specifically say to me, I blame myself. Mm-hmm. I did this or I must have done something. Um, yeah. and, and I think, 
you know, that I, I, I've always kind of been of the belief, even, you know, with all the history, you go back to the, the, the vaccines and what was brought up, you know, so many years ago. Um, I mean, I think that from my perspective, it, it I think we're, we're looking for these answers to be able to pinpoint to say, this is the reason, you know, it's because there is a lot of grief. There is a lot of doubt. There is a lot of uncertainty and, and people looking for answers that it's really easy to pinpoint something like that or say, avoid this, protect right. yourself against that. Like I, I, I find myself doing it as I have a, I have a two-year-old and, uh, and I remember thinking about when we're thinking about, okay, where are we going to live? We're about to start a family. My wife and I are moving to a new location. I thought about, I live in LA. I know about this study from the Boone Fetter Clinic. I am going to avoid this. Mm-hmm. And and it's those things you kind of stick to. It's something to hold on to. Um, it's mm-hmm. it's all this uncertainty can be. I think is very um, confusing. You know, even not just for families um, who have individuals with autism, but I think for people who are, you know, families who are looking at having that second kid, third kid, the next child, sure. people having their first. I mean, it's just so in the media right now about what is this cause that we don't understand. Sure. And, you know, I think obviously there's um, everyone wants to do right by their kids and right by their family. Um, So, you know, it's a completely natural thing. Um, I just I want to emphasize you do everything you can and you you obviously take care of any anything that you can foresee. Um, I give people a lot of credit Mm -hmm. because I I do think they care a lot about their kids or their future kids in that way. Um, But, you know, at at the end of the day, there's only so much you can do and there's only so much you know you can do. And and after that, I think it's, um, although you want to come up with the narrative and answer the question, the cosmic question of why, and although we as researchers are working really hard to answer that, at an individual level beyond participating in research studies to answer that, I think in the day-to-day sort of grind of doing things, um, it's not it's not productive to have sleepless nights. It's more productive to get a good night's sleep sure. and to help your child the next day. You know, we're, you we've been we've been just chatting away and we've been talking for a while here, and I and I I so enjoyed this conversation. You know, I, I kind of I, I probably have so many more questions to ask you. As every time I feel like I'm listening to you, I kind of like think to my head of like, what about this and what about that. Um, I guess for me, just to kind of like tie this all together, um, whether it be maybe for a family out there, you know, we we do have a lot of people who are providing different therapies as well. I mean, do you have any recommendations for us as 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 takeaways? You know, if if we take away all of this information, what we do understand, and a lot of what we don't understand, you know, are there key takeaways of like? next steps of like how to continue to be involved or how to continue to become aware or, or roles that, that each of us can play in kind of like helping all of this research progress. Yeah. So I think there are, um, you know, there's the short term and the long term to me. Um, and okay. the short term is I think, you know, you just have to keep doing every day, Loving that individual with autism in your life, whether it's, you know, a student, whether it's your child, whether it's a grandchild, uh, you just have to keep yeah. doing that and, yeah. you, and don't lose hope. Um, you know, as, as tough as the days may seem sometimes and as much as someone may have meltdowns or tantrums or, you know, there may be a, be a particularly bad seizure or you're disappointed that something um, that seemed, they seem like they knew two weeks ago they've lost, um, just don't give up. Um, those individuals 
have amazing potential. And one of the things that I just am constantly amazed by is how much potential that we underestimate in them. That is how much is going on inside their heads and how much um, they just either can't or don't express to us sometimes, but how wonderful and how full of miracles they are inside. So just don't give up on that. That's that's sort of my short-term first piece of advice. Um, The longer term is that there are just a lot, we've talked about them, but there are just a lot of answers we don't know the the answers to, a lot of questions we don't know the answers Mm -hmm. to, and we're not going to figure them out individually. Um, It's just not possible. It's going to need us all to band together as a community to really work together. And and I want to give, I've said it before, but I just want to reiterate the sense of working together. It's not just researchers. It's not just individuals with autism and their families. It's really the combination of those two together, pulling together, listening to each other, and being able to work together to come up with those answers. And so, in particular, one of the guiding principles that that we've put in place in Spark is that um, as we are starting to find these answers out, we want to make sure we're very free and open and communicating and clear about what it is that we're finding. Um, and in some cases, we may not find an answer, but we want to know the folks in Spark who participated so that they know we, we didn't find the answer. We didn't come up with the answer, and here's why we think we still don't have those answers. Or if we do come up with the answers, we want the people who work so hard at being able to help with these studies. We want them to, to learn from this, and if it is possible, um, to directly benefit from that information. And so it's really that spirit of community, I think, that we're trying to instill and make sure that that's, we're, we're holding researchers' feet to the flames within this, that they understand that this is not just about them being able to you know, get another paper out about this. This is something that means a lot to the individuals who live this every single day. Um, And so it is something that I am absolutely sure together we are going to do things that are just multiplicative in terms of what we could do individually. And that's the spirit that we want to try and instill, um, not just about the genetics, but all of these other factors as well. And we want it to make a practical difference in the lives of the individuals with autism. So this is not just about some, you know, sort of erudite learning about the 451st gene for autism. This is about how to take that information and practically make a difference in the lives of people every single day. No, I, I, I just, I love the mission. I love what you guys are doing. Just, I, just hearing everything, the, the word that just came to mind about what you guys are trying to put together. It's like I kept hearing community. The way mm-hmm. you're trying to spread the information, really bring a community together to help solve a problem. As you're saying, it's not just families or researchers or practitioners. Like everyone's got to come together to really solve this. And I think um, that's. You know, I know in what I do, like that's what I preach is, okay, great, we're providing a treatment plan. We've got to bring this child's community together, teachers, therapists, parents, family members. And it's, it's so interesting and I think cool to hear these parallels and all the different things that we're doing to, to try and treat autism or understand the causes of autism. You know, it's, even though it's so different, um, and I, I definitely am constantly reminded of, of the differences, but now I guess the similarities too for um, for the genetics versus the, the therapy side. So it's it's just very cool to, to see these parallels. For everyone out there, um, I think you gave the information before. I'd love for you to give it again. Um, for families to know more about Spark, learn more about um, the program, the project, um, where can they find out more about it? Absolutely. Thanks for asking, Rob. So it's spark with a K, S-P-A-R-K, for autism.org. 
so sparkforautism.org. You can go on the website um, if you'd like to register to be part in the study. It's Everything is online. You don't have to go to any particular clinical site or any particular place. You can do it online in your jammies at 11 o'clock at night if you like. Um, it takes about 20 minutes to register, and if you do decide that you want to participate in the genetic part of it specifically, um, you consent or you give permission online for the genetic portion. We'll send a kit to your home. You can spit into a cup. It's a simple as that and send it back in. Um, like I said, everything can be done from the convenience of your home, any place within the United States. And as you participate in doing that, hopefully for you and your family, um, then you automatically get to be part of these genetic studies that if they do find a genetic cause for the autism, and if you would like to receive that information back, you can get that information. All of those online give you places to check off and say yay or nay if you do or don't want that information. Um, and if you do do that, we also obviously realize that you're a busy person, um, and so we have a small token of our appreciation also for participating, a gift card that comes with being part of the Spark community. Wow. That's great. Um, Wendy, thank you so much for being here. This was just so interesting. Just, I, I feel like I learned a lot. Um, I'm, I'm always trying to learn and understand the genetic side of, of the causes. Um, and I feel like you actually you, you put a big piece of the puzzle in for me that, that's been lacking up until now. So I, I just really appreciate all of this information um, that you've been able to provide me and the listeners. Oh, Rob, thanks. It's been absolutely my pleasure. Um, and I just want to thank you for doing what you do. This is an amazing way that you educate the community, and uh, it's a wonderful experience to be here. Well, thanks, everybody, for being here. Um, you know, as I said, I think Wendy just does a great job of, of taking this complicated material and, and just breaking it down um, in a in just a more digestible way. Um, you know, these shows are ones that I just, I really enjoy. Um, I, I recommend everybody. If, if, if this one spoke to you as it, as it does to me, um, I recommend you guys go back into our archives. We have a great show from a few years back um, with uh, Dr. Raphael Bernier, and he's a, a researcher up in Seattle with Seattle's Children's Hospital. And, and he's really one of the shows that kind of really sparked this this interest for me. Um, I remember speaking to him and feeling like I, I, I get it. Um, so much so we, I actually brought him in and, and he came and did a presentation for um, everybody at Autism Spectrum Therapies a few years back. Um, and I think uh, listening to him along with this show are just great compliments to one another to help just expand um, your understanding of the, the research being done and, and some of the, the genetic um, I guess components as well as some of the theory behind the, the genetic correlation um, with autism and, and, and the causes of. Um, so you can find that show um, in our archives. Uh, our archives are available to you guys through all the great spots, um, iTunes, Blog Talk, and of course um, at the Autism Spectrum Therapies website, which is autismtherapies.com. If you've got questions, ideas, comments, or just want to say hi, um, please email us at moreinfo at autismtherapies.com or find us on Facebook at the Autism Spectrum Therapies Facebook page. Until next time, have a good one, everybody. Take care. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. 
For additional information and resources about autism, visit www.learnitsystems.org backslash family. Know an inspiring group or individual we should talk to? We would love to hear more from you at more info at autismtherapies.com. Want to hear more? Listen to previous episodes at www.allautismtalk.com. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.